Well, Pastor Marvin is still on vacation. He'll be back next week. Um, so in the meantime, we, we get some we get some special pulpit fill-ins. So, so this week, uh, Curtis Graham is come. He's going to preach. Um, he's the son of Greg and Alva, and uh, I think he's known to many of you. A lot of you who are newer may not know him too well, but but here's Curtis to bring God's word to us. Well, good morning. And uh, this morning, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 107, I'm going to preach on this psalm in its entirety, so be prepared to be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon. But Psalm 107. So, just an introduction. There's one word... That's repeated, and actually it was repeated several times already in this service, in the songs that we sang, in the prayers that were prayed. And this one word is more important than any other in this long psalm. It is so essential, the author repeats its usage six times throughout this psalm. And it translates in the ESV... To steadfast love. Loving kindness is its translation from the American Standard Version. And mercy is how it's translated in the King James Version. The word is in Hebrew is chesed. And I probably didn't quite say that right. But chesed love. And it's an attribute of God. That would have been very familiar to the Jews. So, throughout your Bible, actually, this word said is often translated even in a contextual manner. So, sometimes it might be steadfast love, sometimes it might be mercy, sometimes it might be compassion, sometimes it might be loyal. But the reason for this discrepancy in its translation is because the word itself encompasses so much that the English uh, language doesn't kind of permit that kind of um, depth in one word. So, his said love is compassionate, it is generous and merciful in application, it is resolute, firm and loyal in dedication, it is selfless in its intention, patient in its commitment, and it delivers assurance in its promises. His said love is active in its application. Okay, so all of that is wrapped up in this one word. I have chosen four short statements to reflect on uh, when we read that word throughout this psalm. So if you're taking notes, I think there's a blank page in your uh, handout that you got this morning. But the four things that I want us to remember are that God is forever selfless in his love. So when we look at that word steadfast love, forever selfless, forever graciously, mercifully, compassionately active, forever resolute in conviction, and forever dedicated to his commitments. I'll say that one more time. Forever selfless, forever graciously, graciously, mercifully, compassionately active, forever resolute in conviction, 
forever dedicated to commitment. So you can see why the translators sometimes have trouble picking a word for the context of how it's being used. So let's just jump right in. Psalm 107 starts off, says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love, his hesed love, endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. The author here in this introduction calls us to give thanks to the Lord for his hesed love that endures forever. Now, humans can show this kind of love. There's an example in the Bible with uh, Ruth and Naomi. The way that Ruth loves Naomi is considered to be that same word, that hesed love. Now, humans can show this kind of love, but notice that in here, and oftentimes in the Psalms, the writer puts right beside it, your hesed love endures forever. That's something that we humans can't do. God's love is firm and enduring, lasting the test of time. The psalmist tells in this uh, psalm four scenarios to remind us of how God relates to humanity. It shows his hesed love in these four different situations. Each scenario, um, we can see our lives reflected in these. So I'd ask you, as I read through these different situations, these different scenarios, try to just picture in your mind if this is something that your life feels like. So each one of these scenarios, too, each one of these little short stories in this psalm, it has four parts. It has a situation of desperation, and it has an ask. So they, have to, they ask for something, and then there's deliverance. And then at the end, there's praise. So it's going to follow that template. So each, through each one of these four scenarios, there's going to be a situation of desperation. They're going to ask for something. There's going to be deliverance and then praise. So let's jump into the psalm. Keep going here. So scenario one is deliverance for the longing and the hungry soul. The situation, just start reading in verse 4. Some wandered in the desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Wandering in the desert, the redeemed sought past to an oasis to find rest and relief. In an environment with no discernible ways, they were caught up in the worst place to be aimless. An endless maze of nothing. When we get caught up in an endless maze of sin, we can wander in vain searches for respite. We think that these things that we bring into our lives, you know, whether it be consumerism or something, whatever it is, we think that these things are going to bring us rest and comfort. And we follow what maybe may appear to be a path to relief, but find ourselves continually chasing discontentment. Can you see yourself in this type of pursuit? Now, the Israelites, as you're probably well aware, they knew all too well what it meant to wander. 
They wandered in the desert. They also had different types of wandering in terms of just wandering away from God. In their history as a people, they spent many years wandering both literally and figuratively. The Israelites knew how it felt to desire a place called home. Two examples of exile in Israel's history are you know, the, the 40 years they spent in the desert, wandering around, trying to find the promised land. There was also the Babylonian exile, which wasn't necessarily wandering in the desert. But uh, they wandered in that under um, the Babylonian rule. In both accounts, they get lost because they refuse to keep God at the helm of their journey. In these deserts, they lost their source of nourishment and their souls lost its strength. So here in verse 5, we see that it says, Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then in this scenario, we come to the ask. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So imagine how much relief comes when you're wandering in the desert, and you got nothing, and you have no discernible path of how to get anywhere, and all of a sudden you get delivered to a city. We see here in the psalm, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. So this would imply they knew the risk they were in, and they had become desperate. One of the hardest things for us to admit is that we need help. It's even more challenging if we don't recognize the danger. Before I move on, I just want to point something out. You probably can look in your Bible, and at the very top of this psalm, it says... Something to the effect of this applying to the redeemed. This psalm is for those who were already saved by God. So if you're sitting here thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've made this choice in my life. This doesn't really apply to me. I'm not wandering. I'm not, I'm not away from God. This psalm is a reminder to those who have already been redeemed. So it can be even more challenging if we don't recognize sometimes the danger we're in. While ignorance may be bliss in the short term, we notice something is not quite right when we feel the emptiness of hunger or thirst. Hunger and thirst apply here for us in terms of spiritual health in the same way as physical health. I asked this question this morning in this first scenario Are you wandering in a desert in your life? Are you feeling the emptiness of sin? Do you feel like your path does not lead to an oasis? Does your soul long for the comforts of home? If so, the answer is simple. In fact, it's so simple that it defies every sense. Just ask. The next portion says they cry, or it says in this port or section, they cried to the Lord. You know, it can't really be that simple, can it? Do we believe it can be? One thing to note is the desperation with which they asked. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that you need to be desperate in order for God to act. 
That's not true. God can act no matter how we act. However, we often don't turn to God unless we have to. It's not until we're desperate. We push our luck till we have no other choice. We think we don't need God until we get lost, and we do. We must search our hearts and see where we have wandered from him. We must recognize our need for his intervention. Finally, in this psalm, there's the deliverance and then the praise. Lucky for us, God is steadfast in his love for us. The psalm says in verse 7 that God will straightforwardly lead us till we reach our comfort. He keeps us on the straight path through his word and his church. So here we go in verse 8. It says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Remember that word, steadfast love, that chesed love. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now while it's easy to pass over these verses that talk about God's steadfast love, they may be the most important part of this entire psalm. If we could only remember everything God has done for us, we would sing his praise every moment of every day. The Israelites needed constant reminders. That's why they have psalms like this throughout, the, throughout this whole book. We need reminders. God's patience and compassionate mercy can sometimes lead us towards indifference in him. You know, we get too comfortable until life shakes us up. But the psalmist here pleads us to remember God's steadfast love for us. Thinking this way begs the question, why is it essential for us to praise God? Remember those words that encompassed God's steadfast love that endures forever? In times of pain times of trouble, forever selfless, forever graciously, mercifully, compassionately active, forever resolute in conviction, forever dedicated to his commitments. There is a direct correlation between contentment and our praise of God when we turn our focus from ourselves to God, we will stop wandering in the deserts of sin and find comfort and rest in the presence of the Lord. If you're writing notes, this is my thesis statement for the entire sermon. God is unwavering in his loyalty, compassion, and love for us, ready to restore us when we call upon him. Scenario two, deliverance from the imprisoned or enslaved soul. So the first one was about the wandering soul, the wandering person. This one is someone who's been enslaved or imprisoned. In fact, it says they're imprisoned awaiting death. Some, in verse 10, some sat in darkness And in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. 
So he borrowed or bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Now, not many of us, I would assume, have experienced being a prisoner. Very few of us know what it feels like to be in iron shackles. But we have all experienced things that imprison us. Verse 10 says that these characters were prisoners in affliction and chains. Sin can make us a prisoner in the very same way. Sin can easily entangle us, and once caught, we can become prisoners to it. In prisoners of that time, prisoners had to work like beasts of burden. They had no liberty, no rest, and they had constant toil that would make even the stoutest heart give in. So that's the picture that he's painting here of this prison this constant toil, this no liberty, this no rest, they were like a beast of burden. Has sin trapped you in your life? Are you a slave to a behavior that is keeping you separated from those you love? Do you wonder if, there, if you may be a slave to your sin? Are you afflicted and distressed with your bounds? Does your soul long for freedom and rest? People outside the church and Christians in the church wrestle with feeling trapped by sin. And the answer is the same in both situations. The first step is confronting the crisis we are in with honesty. And if trapped, we need, to, we need help from someone capable of setting us free. The next is the ask. In verse 13, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Again, the answer is is easy, but an application is difficult. Ask God for help, and he will deliver us from our distress. The answer is, is easy in concept, but walking the path is difficult. When our actions trap us, it can be a challenging walk out of those consequences. The steadfast love of God stays with us through that entire journey out of the consequences of our decisions. See, God just doesn't take you and supplant you in a different situation and everything just goes away. That doesn't happen. Because when we sin against other people, God might change our heart, but they're still dealing with the devastation of what we might have done. But God will be with us through it all. Next comes the deliverance. If you feel trapped by the weight of some of your decisions, what does it say? God will set you free. God will deliver you from your distress. The road may seem impossible, but there is hope. God is steadfast in his compassion, mercy, and kindness. Freedom from whatever prison is at hand. And God is with you through every single step. Verse 14, it says, He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. God is faithful, and God will guide you out of your entrapment. He is willing and devoted to forever be rescuing you from your sin. Forever. 
Right? Remember I said that word steadfast is always coupled with endure forever. The path to freedom is there. How will you respond to the said love of God? Next comes the praise. This is what we do with God's said love. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Remember those words that encompass God's steadfast love, which endures forever. Forever selfless, forever graciously, mercifully, compassionately active. Forever resolute in conviction. Forever dedicated to his commitments. Loyal. Because of what God has done, we praise his name. We remember what he has done for us. Praise is so much more than just music. But when we sing, we remember who God is and what he can do. God is able and willing to set us free if we would only recognize our need for him. God is unwavering in his loyalty, compassion, and love for us, ready to restore us when we call upon him. Next situation. So first we had the wandering soul. Then we have the soul who gets entrapped or in prison awaiting death. And this one may seem like a repeat of the last one. But there's a subtle difference. This one is deliverance for the troubled, self-destructing soul. So not only have they been trapped and imprisoned, but this is someone who's self-destructed. They are their worst enemy. It says in verse 17, it says, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. The picture here is that of a hospital. And someone throughout their life has made poor decisions and coming close to death because of those decisions. They've lived in sin for a long time. In this snapshot, we find the consequences of our foolishness and how God responds to it. You probably think this is very similar to the scenario we just reviewed and you would be right. First, we looked at when people wander from him or aimlessly live a life apart from him. Secondly, we read about people who have become enslaved or imprisoned by sin. If you want to think of that imprisoned one, one good way to look at it is any kind of addiction that you're addicted to. That could be money. That could be work. That could be pornography. That could be alcohol. It could be, I don't know what it is. So easy to become imprisoned by sin. This third section is again about our relationship with sinful nature and God. But this time we look at it from the perspective of deliverance from consequences. The character in this scenario is enslaved to sin and have engrossed themselves in it for an extended period of time, choosing to embrace it. The affliction described here is of a self-inflicted nature. And we can get trapped by sin, wandering too close to it, but living willingly in it has lasting, long-lasting consequences. These consequences can cause us to loathe life itself, 
many start to believe they have no hope. That no one is able to save them. No one can rescue them from the decisions they've made. No one can overcome what they've done with their life. The pleasures of life and food are no longer relevant to them. They they seek death. In this psalm, these people are at the end of their rope, feeling that death is coming close. Have you ever, or do you ever feel like you have lived too long in sin to experience redemption? Have you lived a life that you think is foolish? You can believe that you have no hope because of your foolishness. The next verse shows us how God responds to those suffering affliction because of a life of folly. In verse 19, it says, they, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and, and he delivered them from their distress. These people knew what they had done, but in desperation, at the end of their rope, they cried out to him. I think of the cross. You know, Jesus is up on the cross, and there's the, the thief and the criminal that's beside him, and he's lived a horrible life, and he's, he's going to die right there. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, will you remember me? And what does Jesus do? Regardless of how he's lived his life, how does Jesus respond? Through compassion, grace, mercy. In verse 20, we see the deliverance here. It says, he sent out his word and he healed them. Even though they lived that horrible life. He healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. You see, are you starting to get a sense of the strength and the power of God's has said love? Even if you've lived a life of horrible deeds your entire life, God's has said love can overcome that. God's forever selfless, forever graciously, mercifully, compassionately active, forever resolute in conviction, forever dedicated to his commitments. He is committed to you. These are the redeemed, remember? Each of these words is an understatement to the bounds of God's said love for you and me. Even if you've lived the most reckless life and foolish life of sin, swallow your pride and realize that God still wants to see you delivered. Would you cry out to him and accept his redemption? God desires for you to come to him. He is waiting for you, um, able to bring you out of your self-inflicted pain. Next, we move to the praise. Imagine someone who spent their life destroying themselves at the end of their rope. They're next to death, and God comes and heals them, and they they get hungry again. They desire food. They want to live. And what does it say? How do they praise him after this? Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and Songs and joy. Can you imagine the happiness and joy that comes with this type of deliverance? Let us be thankful that for God and his loving kindness. 
Close to death, feeling no hope, God can rescue us from the brink. He is worthy of our praise. God is unwavering in his loyalty, his compassion, his love for us, ready to restore us when we call upon him. The last uh, scenario here, I call this one deliverance for the tempest-bound soul. It's about a storm. We all deal with storms in our life. And let's read in verse 23. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Now lastly, here we see a scene that's centered around fear. This isn't necessarily about sin. This isn't necessarily about being entangled in sin or living a life of sin and being delivered. This is about being scared. Lastly, we see this scene about fear. The seas were a, a place of economic growth at that time. But it came with a, a, a massive risk. If you've ever been on the, on the ocean when a storm hits, it can be like sitting in the middle of a boat and, the, and the, the hills are just, these massive hills are just rolling past you. Now, I've been on a cruise ship with my wife and a storm hit while we were on it. It wasn't like a crazy storm or anything, but I remember looking at the waves and being like, holy Like, wow. (laughs) In the middle of the ocean, the average waves are two meters high. Average waves. Okay? Two meters high. And can grow to more than ten meters high just just on their own. Like, if it's a big storm, it can get up to ten meters high. Now, anybody who knows anything about how waves work, if they just get into the right kind of, I don't know what they're word would be frequency, but if they get in sync with each other, they can either boost the waves up even higher, or they can kind of cancel each other out. Now, if they boost each other up, they can double in size. So think about that for a second. 20 meters high. That's like a 10-story building, eight stories. This is the kind of fear that the author here is talking about. You're riding a ship, and all of a sudden you hit one of these waves, and it just feels like my life is over. We're done. Have you ever been out of your depth in life? Are you feeling overwhelmed by your circumstances? Now, this verse can can apply just strictly to life, and it... There's also something interesting in this verse that I want us to pay attention to. The second thing that I want you to notice is what did they see in the ocean? Like if you're reading along with me, just take a look at verse 24. What did they see in the ocean? So that we're talking about fear, but what did they go out into the ocean for? It says, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. 
Now that can be about seeing the whales and seeing the creation and seeing all the marvelous things that God has done. But another way to interpret this is figuratively. You see, God's work requires us to take steps of faith. Putting our life as it is at risk. Even following God, we experience fear. How many people get scared when they even think about sharing their testimony? Yeah, I saw a couple people wave their hand. Now, another thing I just want to point out, it's important to note here in this version, it says that uh, it uses the word evil plight. Now, this is not necessarily talking about evil in terms of the people on the ship were evil. This is saying that there was sheer terror in this scenario. So metaphorically, we can stay close to the shore with our pursuit of God, and we can play it safe. But where are the great things of God? Where does it say? It says, the great things of God are out in the deep. And what's out in the deep? Waves. Big waves. When we risk little, we achieve little. If you pursue God out into uncharted territory and feel out of control, write these verses, Psalms uh, 107, 23 through 32 on the canvas of your heart. The ask here in verse 28, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. When we experience fear because of our circumstances, we can turn to God, and He is faithful to deliver us. How many missionaries have we heard say that when they come to speak? Do we really believe that God is in control? Do we really believe in his chesed love? The deliverance in verse 29, it says, He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. This set of verses reminds me of when Jesus calmed the storm with his disciples. It's kind of funny, hey? Like, the psalmist writes this way a long time before Jesus, and then Jesus comes along, the disciples are freaking out on the sea, and Jesus just calms the story, just like God. They were working alongside Jesus on his ministry, journeying with him, following God, and suddenly a storm picks up. They feared for their lives, but Jesus was sleeping? He gets up, kind of tells them, like, take it easy, guys. I got this. And he rebukes the waves, calming the storm. God is faithful to deliver us from the things that seem impossible to us, lifting us over them. Are you ready to trust God with your fear? Where could God take you if the storms were calm? Imagine that. Think of all the barricades in your life that you say, I can't do that because that's right there. I can't get past that. What if it were possible, just think for a second, what if it were possible that God just took that mountain and went, and took it out of the way? Do you believe he can do that? Because he can. So often the giant barricade to us doing God's uh, good works uh, is our inability to get past our own fears. Think of the biggest reason that is holding you back from sharing the gospel. Can you imagine that scenario if God just removed it? In verse 30, it says, Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. God is faithful to take you where you saw his glorious works, so there is no need to worry. 
After that, the praise, it says in verse 31, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. God is worthy to be praised for His steadfast love. Remember those words to describe Hesed love. Forever selfless, forever graciously, mercifully, compassionately active, forever resolute in conviction, forever dedicated in his commitments. If you take a risk and follow God, know he has always been committed to you, always, forever. God will see you through any fears that may come along your way. Now the hardest thing for me when I say that is does this mean things will be easy? And you've heard this a million times probably if you've been to church your whole life. No, it doesn't mean things will be easy. That is not what this passage is saying in all these scenarios. It's not saying that if you ask God for deliverance, that things will be easy. That is not true. No, but it means that he will be with you through everything, calming the waves to allow you to keep moving forward. God is unwavering in his loyalty, compassion, and love for us, ready to restore us when we call upon him. This final section of the psalm, a lot of times when people preach on this section, they, they kind of drop this section out and just preach on the four sections. But I wanted to, to do the whole psalm in its entirety. And this isn't a scenario necessarily, but this section is God's sovereignty over the barren soul. God's sovereignty. The final section of this psalm is is, uh, about God's chesed love for us. And let's just read this here. It might seem like a complete departure from everything we've read so far. But in verse 33 it says, He turns rivers into desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. A fruitful land into a salty waste. Because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city and live in it. So first of all, he can do whatever he thinks is right. Sometimes God turns fruitful land into desert, sometimes desert into or fruitful land, or fruitful land into desert and desert into fruitful land. God is sovereign. And there he lets the hungry dwell, in verse 36. They establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad. And all the wickedness shuts its mouth. You see, God works, uh, God's work turns the heart of those who choose evil to wasteland and those who hunger for him to springs of water. This closing section is about God's sovereignty. And if you're unfamiliar with this word, uh, it means supreme power or authority. So the first four scenarios are the author's claims. This is what God can do. This is what God can deliver you from. 
God has the power to deliver his restoration and deliverance, and he also can withhold his blessing in the presence of evil. You may think that this is unfair, but understand that God does all these things for us to help us return to him and follow his ways. The hardest thing to understand about God is that we are made in his image and not the other way around. God is not bound by by failure and decision-making like humanity. God is infinite in wisdom. God is righteous in judgment. And God is gracious in redemption. And God is sovereign. He wants to build you up where you're fallen. He wants to give you rest and comfort from your aimless wandering. He wants to open the traps that entangle you. He wants to break the chains that bind you. He wants to heal your self-inflicted wounds and restore you. He wants to calm your fears and provide opportunity for you. God is for you. Forever selfless, forever graciously, mercifully, compassionately active, forever resolute in conviction, forever dedicated to his commitment. Whatever your question is, God is your answer. Sometimes it can be difficult. But all you need to do is ask. And even this morning, with all the devastation that we just heard about before I came up to preach this sermon, it's almost hard for me to say that. But verse 43 says, and this is, this is actually the verse that led me to want to preach on this sermon, preach the sermon. It says, whoever is wise, let him attend these things. Let them consider the hesed love of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord. So we want to be wise and remember the hesed love of the Lord. God is unwavering in his loyalty. Thank you, God. God is unwavering in his compassion and love for us. Thank you, God. God is ready to restore us when we call upon him. Thank you, God. For your said love for us, ready to save us if we would just ask. Lord, thank you for your said love. If we are wandering, God, if we are trapped in sin, God, if we have lived a life of sin and we feel there is no hope, God, if we are fearful and we are trying to follow you but we're scared of what's ahead, God, your said love is for us. God, would you revive our hearts? Would you help us to know that we have a place, our home is here with you. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us this morning? God, thank you so much for what you've done for us, but we are hurting God, I just pray that you would be with the families that are dealing with this tragedy. Lord, 
You're in control. You're sovereign and you know everything that's happening. I just pray that you would be glorified through all things. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.